0: And it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrushed.
1: And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's
2: happening in the blood and that can paint
3: a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right.
1: Think Health. On 2 SER 107.3. Hi, I'm Laura Corrigan. Welcome to Think Health. This month I'm filling in for Jake Morkum while he takes a well-deserved holiday. On this week's show.
0: Car T cell therapy. This is using the patient's own immune cells manipulating those cells in a laboratory situation so that they can be then used to hone in specifically on those cancer
4: cells and kill the cancer cells.
1: We learn about blood, what it is, and how it can help fight cancer. And?
4: The most likely benefit to breaking up sitting is that it most likely slow down cognitive decline.
1: Are you sitting down? I am. We find out how sitting down affects our brains. But first...
2: Well, my journey started in February 2008. Uh, I found a lump under the left side of my neck, which was just a really soft, small lump, and I didn't think anything of it. Anyway, I went to my GP. Four weeks later, I finally had a diagnosis, and from there it was just one big roller coaster ride.
5: Mother's Day in 2004, I woke up with a swelling in my neck, and I thought it was just because I'd been to a party the night before and I might have just... Uh, I had a sore neck really more than anything else but it wasn't until on Monday when I went to work and tried to put a tie on that I realised that it really was a bad swelling because my collar wouldn't do up.
1: Judy Lowry and Marty Doyle are survivors of head and neck cancer. Head and neck cancer refers to malignant tumours growing in the tissue or lymph nodes of the head and neck region of the body. This can mean the oral cavity, tongue, palate, jaw, salivary glands, throat or nose. Head and neck cancer is not the most common cancer in Australia and it certainly doesn't have the biggest public profile. But about 4,000 Australians are diagnosed with a form of it each year.
2: Uh, I had three biopsies in total. Then came the neck dissection where they removed 45 lymph nodes as it had spread from the primary, it was at the base of my tongue, Uh, and then the secondary
5: was in the lymph nodes. I got 35 days of radiation and three, four weeks of chemotherapy. Uh, Lost 25 kilos in six weeks. Couldn't walk from the car to the front of the house when I got home from hospital.
1: Head and neck cancer is more common in men and major risk factors include smoking and alcohol consumption. It's also linked to human papillomavirus or HPV, which is sexually transmitted. Survival rates are improving and new medical treatments are making things better for patients. But treatment can be prolonged and it can have a profound effect on a survivor's quality of life.
2: There is always reminders there of your treatment and what you've been through. Um, eating, I managed to eat most things by washing it down with fluids, which is probably not ideal. Um, as far as the pain and everything, you just learn to manage it.
5: One of the things is I'm really grateful for is that I didn't have to, they didn't have to use a, a thigh muscle to replace the side of my face, or they didn't have to take out my tongue or anything like that start to get it's not getting back to normal it's getting used to a new normal because you will have side effects from the radiation you will have problems with uh, the muscles atrophying so getting very stiff nine times out of ten you'll lose some saliva which means that uh, you'll have a dry mouth most of the time and you'll have to look after your teeth it's really important because without the saliva there's nothing to protect your teeth from decay and some people have lost all their teeth because because they haven't had good oral hygiene.
1: Following his diagnosis in 2004, Marty Doyle reached out to the Cancer Council looking for a support group. There wasn't any, so he started his own. And this year Mr Doyle teamed up with freelance journalist, former ABC broadcaster and fellow survivor Julie McCrossin to produce a head and neck cancer patient book. It's the largest collection of patient stories of diagnosis, treatment and survival from head and neck cancers ever published in Australia. Julie McCrossin was diagnosed in 2013 with cancer in her throat caused by HPV. 80% of the population have the sexually transmitted infection at some point in their life, but the body's immune system simply fights it off. But for people like Ms. McCrossin, it can cause cancer in the cervix, penis, anus and the head and neck region. An HPV vaccine was introduced in schools nationally in 2007 for girls and included boys from 2013. Julie McCrossin says raising awareness about head and neck cancer is important for encouraging more investment in research and support.
3: I can say from direct experience, I have a very educated cohort of friends, um, many of whom are in the media, and almost none of them had heard of head and neck cancer. And they certainly hadn't heard of HPV-related head and neck cancer. And it had never occurred to them that there was another way to get throat cancer. In other words, not alcohol, not tobacco, but HPV. Uh, So it's like
1: Australia just hasn't turned its mind to head and neck cancer. Why do you think that it gets less attention than other cancers?
3: I think people are embarrassed by the sexually transmitted nature of it. Um, I think also head and neck cancer in the past has been predominantly an experience for men who have been heavy drinkers and heavy smokers. There was quite a high death rate. And quite a high rate of people who survived, but either because of surgery or surgery and radiation and chemo, had limited capacity to speak or no capacity to speak. So this is really a cancer that's predominantly had a voiceless
1: cohort. As part of treatment for her cancer, Jolima Crossan had to wear an immobilisation mask to protect her healthy cells, especially the brain and spine, during radiotherapy. It's a specially moulded plastic mask that pins the patient down onto the bed. Miss Macrossan found the experience claustrophobic and she's advocating for more information and offers of assistance for patients before the use of the mask. So what I ended up doing after four sessions when I realised
3: I was having kind of panic attacks was I got Uh, 2.5 milligrams of Valium an hour before the treatment I took four songs in on a CD that were the exact duration of my treatment and I could listen to them and know how long my treatment was going to take so you can get help to manage it but at the moment it's not universally offered ahead of treatment and that's one of the things that uh, I'm advocating for and I talk about in my story in the book.
1: Radiation therapy and surgery can interfere with salivary glands, meaning patients can lose saliva altogether or have reduced saliva production, leaving their teeth vulnerable to decay. Julia McCrossin says there should be financial assistance for survivors to help with dental hygiene costs. So in the old days, only
3: 10, 15 years ago, you used to have all your teeth taken out before treatment. Now it's much better than that. Radiation has improved. It's much more targeted. So I didn't have to have any extractions. But I will have to have three monthly trips to the dentist for the rest of my life. I have to... Pay particular attention, and that's very expensive. So, one big problem for head and neck cancer patients is that the mouth isn't in Medicare, which I think is a tragedy. And many lower socioeconomic people cannot afford enough dentistry, and I think our federal government needs to make special provision for them, and state governments
1: as well. The Head and Neck Cancer Patient Book offers advice for sufferers and their loved ones. It's a collection of stories from people who have gone through treatment and tips from doctors. The book is full of optimism and support. Despite the hardships, contributors are grateful for what they have.
2: Life's great. You know, the glass is always half full. There's always a lot worse off than, than, you know, myself. That's the way I like to live my life.
1: Judy Lowry, head and neck cancer survivor. A free PDF version of the Head and Neck Cancer Patient book is available online at com.
2: What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures.
1: We tend to sit down a lot at work and school, on transport, and at home in front of the TV. And there's plenty of evidence that suggests this prolonged sitting is bad for our physical health. But what about our brains? A new paper from the University of Western Australia in collaboration with the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute explores how prolonged sitting may have a negative impact on brain health. The researchers are examining how breaking up sitting with light intensity exercises can reduce the risk of cognitive decline. Lead researcher Michael Wheeler is a PhD candidate in exercise physiology at the University of Western Australia.
4: We're looking at how exercise and breaks in sitting uh, might be affecting brain function in the space of one day. There's obviously a lot of research showing that you know exercise, and when I say exercise, I'm, I'm talking about moderate to vigorous intensity exercise, gives an immediate boost to brain function. You know, it's less well known if. Simply breaking up your sitting gives an immediate boost to brain function. We'll be looking at that. But the most likely benefit to breaking up sitting is that it most likely slow down cognitive decline rather than improve cognitive function. So it is a bit of a research challenge to try and tease out the impact of sitting uh, on brain health. It's something that should be more of a focus in the future.
1: So what happens when we're sitting down that's bad for our brains?
4: Sitting is something which can affect our blood glucose levels uh, and that that in turn might be detrimental to brain health because we know that the brain is heavily reliant on glucose uh, as a fuel um, but that the brain is also heavily reliant um, on a glucose supply within an optimal range um, so that if glucose levels fall outside an optimal concentration range that that can increase the risk for developing dementia And it's not a good thing for brain health.
1: How does our brain use glucose?
4: So essentially, glucose is a sugar, I guess. And our brain uses it as its primary fuel. Every time we eat a meal, we get a glucose response, which means that our body is breaking down the food. But it's also something which is quite tightly regulated as well, because Too much glucose or too little glucose, uh, you know, is not just bad for brain health, but also for other aspects of health as well, with diabetes being an example of a disease characterised by altered glucose levels.
1: And so what's the link with cognitive diseases like dementia?
4: Essentially, we know from large population studies that those who have a a higher average glucose level uh, are at an increased risk of uh, developing dementia. And the reverse is true as well, that if you have a a higher number of exposure to really low glucose levels called hypoglycemia, kind of the idea there is that the brain should have kind of an optimal concentration of glucose. Thinking about the science around that, it's because our brain cells are using glucose all the time that if we have reduced availability of glucose to brain cells, they're not going to be able to do their job you know, and if that's significant enough that it can actually damage brain cells, you know, our glucose is it's a dynamic thing. Our glucose concentration, it's, you know, it's changing throughout the day in response to lots of different things that we're doing, including meals, but also, uh, you know, physical activity as well. And if what you're doing is, is causing your glucose levels to rise quite sharply, that's going to be followed by a subsequent dip. And so you, you see a pattern of more extreme excursions
1: and movement can help regulate our glucose?
4: Yeah, exactly, yeah. So prolonged sitting after eating is something that can encourage more extreme glucose excursions. The theory behind that is that if we're not using our muscles, if we're not contracting our muscles, we're not going to be using glucose. So uh, as a remedy, uh, lots of research shows that regularly breaking up sitting um, with light intensity activity can use up some of the extra glucose in our system. And that's actually important to do, especially after eating, to help keep glucose in that optimal range.
1: So what are some examples of that? What would you recommend people do?
4: The research has kind of looked at um, mostly walking, light intensity walking, a short walk of about three minutes uh, every half an hour is, is what's been studied a lot. Some other research that we've done at the, the Baker Institute in Melbourne showing how simple resistance activities can also have a beneficial effect to glucose levels. Things like calf raises, just going up on your tippy toes, uh, half squats and things like that, because it seems that it's really the you know muscle contraction. So it doesn't have to be a walk. You can be standing at your desk and moving around, fidgeting. It's important to think about practically how do you fit this into your day. Some of the benefits of light intensity activity is that it can be kind of easily built in into the day. There's lots of opportunity to engage in more light intensity activity. Traditionally, people focused more on higher intensity activity like jogging and going to the gym and things like that. But what we do outside the gym is also important. So you know, in terms of building it into your day, it's always a good idea, to, if you can, to actively commute to and from work. You know, you need to get to work anyway, so why not try and build some physical activity into that? And then if you've got a job where you're sitting down a lot, I mean, it's a good opportunity to be aware of that and get up every now and again. But keep in mind that it's really, especially after eating, that that's important.
1: Is a stand-up desk better?
4: Yes, stand-up desk is not the full answer. Um, You know, it's definitely a step in the right direction, but what's coming out in the research is that it's really about trying to uh, alternate between standing, walking, uh, sitting. You know, if people are just standing all day, uh, it's not necessarily that healthy either. So I think, you know, a standing desk is good in the sense that it puts us in a position where we're, you know, more easily able to move around and it's one step closer to walking.
1: As a journalist, and I know a lot of my colleagues do the same thing, we eat our lunch at our desk a lot and never really leave it. Is that a big no-no?
4: If you can plan it so that you eat your lunch away from your desk, you're going to have to walk back to your desks. That could be a good kind of tactic to make sure you don't forget to go for a walk after you eat. I mean, I think it's definitely a good idea to try and separate your lunch from your work for a number of other reasons as well.
1: Michael Wheeler. PhD candidate at the University of Western Australia. Excuse me while I take a short walk.
0: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
1: You might have heard of the four different blood types A, B, O and AB, but did you know there are actually 300 different types? Or did you know that not all animals have red blood? Or that our blood can be used to fight cancer? Dr Irving is the Director of Research and Development at the Australian Red Cross Blood Service and an adjunct professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. How would you explain blood to an alien visiting Earth?
0: (laughs) That's a very good question. So blood is this liquid that circulates around through our body and through the bodies of lots of different organisms and it gives us life it brings the air that we need to breathe uh, so which carries oxygen which we need to have in our cells in our bodies and it takes away all the waste products from those cells as well.
1: What is actually in human blood?
0: Okay so human blood is a, is a liquid and the main component is the watery substance called plasma. So plasma is essentially carries all of these compounds all around through, through, through our bodies, um, and it carries red blood cells, and the red blood cells are those red donut-shaped cells that pick up oxygen from the air and carry it to our tissues, and that also carries around um, platelets, and these are uh, small fragments of cells that are involved in plugging holes that we get when we bleed. And also white blood cells. And the white blood cells are essentially there to fend off um, infectious infections like viruses. And uh, when we get the flu or a cold, the white blood cells come to form. So within, the, within that whole liquid, uh, there's a big mixture of uh, all of these different compounds all working together to keep us alive.
1: And why do some animals have different coloured blood?
0: So some animals so um, have different coloured blood because um, it's really where they've evolved to where they live and they've evolved different mechanisms to um, carry that oxygen around, around the blood. So uh, crabs and some of the crustaceans have a compound called hemocyanin, which is a blue colour. It carries copper around. The copper in, in that compound actually picks up um, oxygen and takes it to their tissues, whereas in humans we have haemoglobin in our blood and it has iron associated with it.
1: Why do you think it's important to study blood?
0: Look, I think it's very important to study blood because, as I said, it's really it's what gives us life. Um, we need all of our tissues need to have energy; they need to have air, oxygen, essentially, to to work. Um, and uh, while blood's been something that we've known about for centuries, there's always something new that we learn. We get blood-borne diseases, we get um, inf- infections in our blood, uh, there are blood cancers. So the more that we learn, the better uh, our long-term health will be.
1: What's an example of an important study in blood and how it led to new technologies in health?
0: One of the most exciting new developments over the past few years is the therapy for treating cancer and it's called CAR T-cell therapy. What it involves is taking some of our white blood cells, specifically the T-cells in our bloodstream, which are those cells that are there to fight infection, genetically engineering those T-cells so that they'll actually specifically target a tumour cell. So people with leukaemia, for example, it's a blood-related disease where some of their Blood cells become cancerous, and um, general treatment is radiation therapy or chemotherapy. With CAR T-cell therapy, this is using the patient's own immune cells, manipulating those cells in a laboratory situation so that they can be then used to hone in specifically on those cancer cells and kill the cancer cells. And there's been some really quite remarkable advances in that area, particularly in the U.S., but there's a number of groups here in Australia as well doing some clinical studies. So that's one of the very exciting areas, I think, for the future of um, blood-related research.
1: And what could this mean for people suffering leukemia?
0: Well, I think in the longer term, a lot of people who who would probably have died uh, because of, they've been refractory to some of the more traditional treatments um, – Will survive. In fact, there's a, quite a number of people who've uh, had B cell lymphoma who are surviving from that therapy. The other thing, it, it's very focused, so it's a very targeted therapy, not the broad brush approach that uh, radiation or chemotherapy is. There are some side effects, but it's really specifically related to the immune system reacting. So it's really, it's the body's using its own immune system to fight back against the cancer cells.
1: And can you explain the difference between the different blood types?
0: So the different blood types, and when we talk about blood types, most people are reasonably familiar with um, whether they're type O or type A or type B or whether they have actually a positive or a negative. And what that, what that really refers to are different um, molecules that are on the surface of the red cells that, uh, that we have in our bodies. In reality, there's a whole bunch more of those blood types. There's about 36 different groups of blood systems. And within those systems, there's about 300 different blood types. And the importance of those is that uh, when we do a transfusion, for example, uh, between one particular uh, patient from a donor, we need to match those blood types so that donor and the patient are compatible. If they're not, there can be a very serious reaction, and which ultimately could kill the patient.
1: So what does our blood tell us about our health?
0: Our blood tells us quite a lot about our health, so we need to measure the amount of red cells that we have circulating around that tells us that we're very healthy if we've got a good proportion of red cells that can take oxygen to our body. Um, it delivers the amount of iron. If we don't have enough iron, we can get very tired, for example. Um, it tells us if some of those cells that I was talking about before that are circulating in the blood, if they have abnormalities in them, then that will tell us that we're sick. Blood cancers, for example, they can be picked up as well to determine whether someone you know, has a cancer, for example, and indeed if also an infection. So we can tell whether there's someone's got been exposed to a viral Disease, um, uh, hepatitis, for example, we can tell just by measuring uh, the presence of um, some of those markers uh, in uh, that person's blood.
1: How far away are we from synthesising blood?
0: So we're not very far away from actually synthesising blood. In fact, there are groups around the world that do synthesise blood, but having A synthetic blood on demand, which is what we at the Australian Red Cross Blood Service have essentially donor blood essentially available on demand from our hospitals, that is quite a long way away because uh, once again to try to make sure that there's a match between the donor and patient, that requires quite complex uh, laboratory work to try to do that. And the technologies, while I say they are available right now, the scale-up and the cost of making a synthetic blood product is still several orders of magnitude more than it is to actually have a donor, a volunteer donor, come in, provide the blood service with a donated blood sample and then us provide that to a hospital for subsequent transfusion
1: dr david irving director of r&d at blood service and adjunct professor at the university of technology sydney that's all we have time for today on think health if you'd like to find out anything more about today's show head to 2ser.com think health if you have any questions after today's show go see your gp Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Laura Corrigan. See you next time.